It's on. Well, guten Morgen. That's good morning. Yeah, you know it. Uh, good morning. My name's Ken. And as Will just shared, I'm a part of the team at Trinity Mission Church. Yes, Trinity Mission Church, which is your church plan. Crossroads Bible Church, you sent this out. Thank you very much. You sent this out a little over a year ago with about 150 of you all. And we are now a year into being a new church. And all I want to say is, it's awesome. It's exciting, right? Come on now. One of the great ways to extend the kingdom of God is through church planning. New ways to reach more people with the good news in a world that's filled with bad news. And Crossroads Bible Church, I am utterly grateful for you, my family, for sending us out so we can see the lives of other people being changed right before us. And um, as I share this with you, the reason why I'm here today is Rod asked me to come and preach at Crossroads because he wants to continue to live into this thing called family, where he goes to Trinity and I come to Crossroads occasionally to be reminded that we're not two separate communities, but that we're one body of believers who are passionately, can I say that one more time, passionately making Jesus known in Grand Rapids and beyond. Can I get an Amen. Now, what didn't happen is Rod and I didn't change pastoral roles. Uh, he's not going to Trinity Mission Church to be the pastor there, nor am I coming to Crossroads Bible Church to be a pastor here. That did not happen. But if it did, Trinity Mission Church would be the fastest growing church in America <laughs> next Sunday. And that's a way of just saying Rod Van Sulkema is one heck of a leader and a gifted preacher. Can I get an amen for Rod? All right. With that being said, I understand that you are currently working through the minor prophets. The minor prophets, those last 12 books of the Old Testament of the Bible. And the reason why they're called minor isn't because they're named after short fellows, but they're called minor because they're not as long. The books are shorter than the major prophets, those prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And as you are now learning a few weeks into this sermon series, you're probably seeing very clearly that those minor prophets, even though the books are shorter, they were fiery preachers. They were fiery fellows, right? They were fiery because on the one hand, these preachers had no problem calling people out on their sin, right? God raised them up to call out the Israelites and other people to remind them that God does not want them to live apart from him. God does not want them to live a life of sin, a life of brokenness. There's this tremendous conviction that comes out of the sermons of these minor prophets. But on the other hand... Those minor prophets were able to clearly preach messages of hope. That they were able to be used by God to convict people of their sins. Maybe even some of you are starting to feel a level of conviction going through this sermon series. At the same time, almost every minor prophet ends with a future hope when God will reign the world with his love and forgiveness, not just for a select chosen few, but for the whole broken world. God is a God of reconciliation. And time and time again in these fiery preachers, we hear the good news of what God is about to do in the future. 
I hope that you're seeing this in the Minor Prophets because today we're going to look at the Minor Prophet of Obadiah. Obadiah, the shortest book of the Old Testament, just 21 verses. You can read it in three minutes or less. So tomorrow you can read that book in your devotional time and then tell your friends, well, you know, I read books of the Bible in my devotional time. Obadiah, 21 verses, boom, shakalaka. Okay. And Obadiah is uniquely called by God to preach not to the Israelites, no, not them, not God's chosen people, even though he himself was an Israelite, but instead Obadiah was raised up by God to preach a fiery sermon to outsiders. Yes, to non-Israelites, people who lived outside of the borders of Israel geographically, people who didn't worship Yahweh on Sundays at the temple, people who probably spoke different languages, used different money in their economy to buy things, people who are in every way considered to be outsiders. Now, as you hear this, uh, it's important for us to just kind of keep this in our minds that this is a sermon towards outsiders. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to do just three simple things. Yes, after we read a part of the book of Obadiah, the first simple thing we're going to do is discover who were the outsiders that God raised Obadiah to preach to. Who were they? What's their identity? Now, I want to give you a warning. Can I warn you? This is going to be an intense Bible study. We are going to pound through scriptures. We are going to work through history of Israel. It is going to be some serious heavy lifting. But again, you're called Crossroads what? Bible Church. So you're, you're up for the task. The second simple thing we're going to do today is we're going to discover who are the outsiders today. Of course, it's good to be a Bible church that works really hard at identifying what is going on thousands of years ago behind the text, right? But it's equally important for us as the children of God here today to work really hard at discovering how does it apply to our lives today. That's number two. Here's number three. We're going to look at how are we supposed to relate to those outsiders. How do we... Uh, posture ourselves? How do we live in relationship to these outsiders here today? So with that being said, I'd like to invite you all to stand as you are able and listen as I read to you Obadiah verses 1 through 4. If you don't have a Biblia, it'll be on the screen. Here we go. Obadiah 1 through 4. This is the word of the Lord. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there, I, God, will bring you down, declares the Lord. You may be seated. 
Well, those outsiders were, who was it? Edom, very good. And of course you're going, oh yes, of course it's Edom. We know who Edom is. Wait, who's Edom? All right, this is where we're going to do some good biblical work. Edom is an outsider that was close to Israel. Yes, Edom is an outsider that was very close to Israel, very close to them for two reasons. First, they were close to Israel geographically. I forgot to bring a map, but let's just pretend for a moment that here is Israel. This is this thing called the Dead Sea right here. And then southeast over here, you have the nation of Edom. Hard time imagining with my hands. I get it. So you live in Grand Rapids. I do too. Not just you, but me. We live in Grand Rapids. And here we are in Grand Rapids, and there's this thing called Lake uh, Michigan. And Michigan is in between us and a town called Chicago, right? Chicago's just on the other side. Chicago people are really excited. Now, imagine how close we are to Chicago. It takes like 10 minutes to get there, right? That's how close it is. Well, in the same and similar way, Israel was very close to the nation of Edom. Let me just say a few words about the geography and the location of Edom. Edom was strategically close to Israel, but also was strategically located in a place in a mountainous region, a mountainous region called the Seir Mountains which means it was a safe place for Edom to dwell. It was a great place to build their cities because they were high and lifted up. There were lots of rocks that could easily become a hedge of protection from any potential enemies trying to come after them. And then also this mountainous region, the mountains of Seir, was the very place that the biggest trade route that moved all the way from India, we're talking super far east India, all the way through Edom into the Mediterranean Sea, which means this, Edom was strategically located to be successful economically. They had people bringing spices and silks and all sorts of wonderful things from the far east, and they would come to Edom right before they make their last push to the Mediterranean Sea to deliver their goods to Italy or Greece or other places. So while they were in Edom, they might have stayed for a week or two or three, drinking tasty beverages, eating bacon cheeseburgers. That's not historical. That's me bringing myself into the story, like burgers. But they would go there for a season to kind of rest and prepare for the last push of their journey. And by being there, they would spend money, which would help out Edom's economy. It also created Edom to be a place of diversity, right? You got people from all over the world hanging out there. It was a place, as the Bible says, a place of wisdom because people in Edom knew a lot about different cultures and worldviews and religions. There's different ways that people worshiped other gods. This is all happening in Edom because this is this mountainous region that is high and lifted up, a safe place and a great place to grow an economy. But that doesn't tell us completely why they are close to Israel. Yes, this is helpful to understand geographically, but what really made Edom close to Israel is because they were Israel's brother. They were close relationally. They were close like two brothers who are twins. 
Let me show you why this is true. If we turn our Bibles to Genesis chapter 25, you can go there or you can listen to me read this to you. But if you go to Genesis chapter 25, you're going to see the beginning of this brotherly relationship between Israel and Edom. There's a guy. This guy's name is Isaac. He's the son of Abraham. He's married to a great gal named Rebecca. Rebecca is finally pregnant. She's about to give birth to two babies, twins. And here's what's going on. The babies jostled each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Rebecca said this, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Verse 24, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Here's where the brotherly relationship between Edom and Israel begins. It begins with these two guys, Esau and Jacob. If you're not sure you can trust me on this, the word Edom means red. Esau came out of the womb red. Esau comes out of the womb as a hairy fellow. I don't know exactly what that means, nor do I want to guess right now here publicly, but he came out as a hairy baby. It sounds really weird to even say it. But Edom had this mountain range called Mount Seir. Remember Mount Seir? I've mentioned it to you already. Mount Seir means hairy. Those mountains were viewed as hairy because they had lots of timber and trees around these mountains. Are you starting to see the play upon words? That's not all. We have Jacob who later becomes Israel, right? We're starting to see the building of these two nations. You're looking at me going, hey, remember we're Crossroads Bible Church. We need more information to trust that what you're saying is true. So you go over to Genesis chapter 36 and in verse 9 you see the descendants, the lineage uh, of Esau. Here it is, verse 9. This is the account of the family line of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. Edom was close to Israel relationally because they were brother nations. They had a deep connection to each other, going all the way back to the beginning of the book. Now, how did this relationship play out over time from the time of Esau and Jacob all the way to the time when Obadiah is preaching this sermon hundreds of years later? Well, we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 2, and in Deuteronomy 22, we have this moment in Israel's history when they're traveling from Egypt where they were once slaves, freed by God, on their way to a promised land, the nation of Israel, and on their way there, they're crossing through the land of Edom. Listen to what God tells the Israelites Deuteronomy 2.4, give the people these orders. You are about to pass through the territory of your relatives, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir. They will be afraid of you, but be very careful. 
Do not provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land, not even enough to put your foot on. I have given Esau the hill country of Seir as his own. You are to pay them in silver for the food you eat and the water you drink. The relationship that these two countries were supposed to have together was a relationship of being brothers, right? God made promises, not just to Jacob, that he will make him a great nation. God made promises to Esau and then ultimately to the Edomites that he would also make them a great nation, that he would give them their very own lands. This is the relationship between these two countries. This is the relationship at the time of Obadiah where these two countries had a pact, a partnership, a covenant agreement that if one country, Israel, gets attacked by another military force, well, then they could run over to Edom for a sanctuary, for a time of refuge to get some much-needed protection from some enemies. And likewise, if Edom is attacked by another military force, they can run to Israel and be protected there too. This is the deep connection that these two countries were supposed to have with each other. So why in the heck is God raising up Obadiah to preach a fiery sermon to the Edomites? What went wrong? Well, in our passage, I believe it's verse 3, Obadiah 3, what goes wrong is Edom was prideful. The text says that they had pride in their hearts. Instead of me defining what the word pride means, let's trust someone who's much smarter than I. His name is C.S. Lewis, and he wrote a book called Mere Christianity. And in Mere Christianity, there's a chapter called The Great Sin. It's a chapter that deals with pride. C.S. Lewis believes pride is the biggest sin behind all other sins. If you want to do ministry at Trinity Mission Church, you have to read this chapter. Okay, here's the definition of pride, according to Lewis. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer, or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich, or clever, or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. The definition of pride is being above other people, having more things than other people, being smarter, having more money, having better children who do all the right things, having a bigger home, more boats, more cars, more everything. Pride is all about being above the rest. Here is an image of the nation of Edom. Please show the picture, maestro. Has anyone been there? Can you raise your hand if you've been to this place? Where is that? Petra. Petra means rocky. The kingdom of Edom originally was in this mountainous region of Seir, modern-day Jordan. Now, these things come, these buildings come much later than our passage, but what you can see right there is a high elevated group of people who are in a protected clefts of rocks where they are able to look down on other people and say, ha ha, we are better than you, Israel. This is an image of what Edom's pride looks like, being high and lifted up in those mountains. And how did this pride of Edom get played out towards 
their brother Israel? Well, we return back to Obadiah verse 11. Remember, we're doing a lot of biblical work here, folks. Verse 11, Obadiah, here we go. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you, Edom, were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in their day of their trouble. You should not march the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster, you, Edom, should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. Here is exactly how Edom's pride lived out to their brother, brother Israel. This is exactly how it lived out. It was lived out first in the way that they postured themselves over Israel. They gloated over them. They gloated over Israel in the day of their disaster. What is the day of Israel's disaster? 586 BC. 586 BC, God raised up Obadiah to preach a fiery sermon to the people of Edom because in 586, 58, 586 BC, get it out, Babylon, a mighty military force, swept right through the southern kingdom of Israel, the city of Jerusalem. When I say swept through, King Nebuchadnezzar sent his elite special forces, his version of the Navy SEALs, to go and utterly destroy the people of Israel. When I say destroy, this is what I mean. Over 100,000 people were killed in battles in no time at all. Uh, the folks who survived these battles were collected together and they were stripped of all their clothes, not some of their clothes, all their clothes. They were put in chains and forced to march naked all the way back to Babylon, 900 miles, utterly humiliating. And as these Israelites are marching back to Babylon as slaves, there are the Edomites standing high and lifted up over the Israelites, looking at them, shouting, yeah, you suffer, you lost Israel, down with Jerusalem. They were gloating over them with their posture. The only way I can make a connection for you today is to think about football. Think about football for a moment. Now, I'm not likening Edomites to Michigan fans. If I did, this would be the last time you'll ever see me. Because <laughs> Rod's fiery too. But Michigan fans root for any team that plays who? Ohio State, right? So Michigan fans will drive to East Lansing not to celebrate the Spartans, but they'll root for the Spartans because they want the Spartans to beat the Buckeyes. They will gloat over the Buckeyes if the Spartans were able to defeat the Buckeyes. Super quiet in this room right now. I feel the blood pressure going, woo! Again, you may never see me. 
That's the closest analogy that I can give to you is that football metaphor, but obviously it was much worse for the Israelites after having lost everything, their homes, their businesses, their friends, maybe even their children were killed, having to walk by the temple, the one place that they know that the living God comes down to earth and dwell with his children has been knocked to the ground. It wasn't just their posture of pride. It was also the Edomites actively lived it out. They participated in the destruction of Israel. Now remember, uh, these two countries would have had a pact, an agreement, a covenant, that if a larger power like Babylon came to Israel to kill Israelites, then the Edomites would say, come to us. We will become a safe refuge in our mountains. We will keep you safe. So what happened in 586 BC when Israelites who were surviving these battles were running south and then east around the Dead Sea, running right into Edom to try to get that sanctuary, that protection. When they get there, there is a crossroads, not a little crossroads where there's roads going like this, but there's a crossroads of pride. Yes, the Edomites were standing there at this crossroads, and if you were an Israelite that was a military leader, a priest, a Levite, maybe you were related to someone in the monarchy, then you would be pushed off to one side in chains, forced to march back to Babylon as a slave. You were handed over, as the text says in verse 14. But for those average Joes just like me, a guy doing a job that has kids and that kind of thing, I would be killed instantly at the crossroads and thrown into a heap of dead bodies. This is a betrayal of trust by a brother. Obadiah, when he's preaching this sermon, remember, he's speaking on God's behalf. He's preaching it, obviously, to the Edomites, but in his crowd, his Crossroads Bible Church of that day, there would have been Israelites that would have heard verse 15 and probably found a level of comfort. Verse 15 says, the day of the Lord is near for all nations as you have done, Edom, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own Head. Have you heard of the golden rule? What's the golden rule? Somebody shout it out. Go for it, dude. Yes, it has this positive reinforcement, right? If you treat people well, you can expect them to treat you well in return. God is here creating not the golden rule to reinforce positive behavior. God is giving the golden rule of pain. Yes, the golden rule of pain. Hey, Edom, as you did in your betrayal to your brother Israel, so it will happen to you. And history tells us that within 30 to 50 years, 30 to 50 years, the time that Obadiah preached this sermon to Edom, Edom was destroyed. 
apparently that wonderful, powerful king, Nebuchadnezzar, and then his descendants, who were ruling the Babylonian empire, were struggling financially. They needed money to continue their war machine of global power. They were losing everything. And so what they decided to do was to go to their allies, people like the Edomites. They would go to the Edomites, and this is exactly what Babylon did. They went all the way to the Seir Mountains, and they climbed up those mountains, and they set Edom on fire. History tells us that Edom burned to the ground. Awful bloodbath. And Babylon took all of the money that they had from that wonderful trade that happened right there in Edom. They took all their money and destroyed the kingdom. History tells us within 200 years, Edom is wiped off the pages of history. They no longer exist. They are forgotten. Because God does come through with his promises. Now, as we uh, have worked really hard studying these biblical passages, doing some good work geographically, doing even better work historically, under the applause, Crossroads Bible Church, you could hang with me in all that hard work. Great job. And as we've done all this hard work biblically, it's important for us now to change our focus, to talk not just about the outsiders then and there thousands of years ago, but to talk about the outsiders here today. Yes, who are the outsiders that we are dealing with in 2019 in Grand Rapids, Michigan? As I ask this question, the question has to be answered with the two things we learned about Edom, yeah? We have to recognize that the outsiders have to be people who are close to us geographically, right? They gotta be people who live in Grand Rapids or Hudsonville or Ada or Rockford. They have to be close enough to us geographically, but that's not all what we've learned. We've also learned that they have to be close to us relationally, that the people who are hurting us have to get close to us, not just geographically in proximity to our physical being, but they have to be close to us relationally, as close as a twin sister or brother. It's at this point in the sermon, people start to look down to the ground because now we're starting to remember those moments where people got close to even us in this room today. Yes, each of us can think about the people who aren't just close to us geographically, but people who are close to us relationally, people who are close enough, if they were a wrestler, they can get the hooks into our back and pull us to the ground. People who, if they were vampires, are close enough to, to sink their teeth into our skin people who are close enough to us to hurt us. And it would be helpful for us to lift out who might those people be, to have more clarity on what it looks like to have people who get close to us to hurt us. And there are three categories of people who can easily get close to us to hurt us. And the first one may be shocking, but it shouldn't be. Yes, the first category of people that often get close to us, I said the word often, to hurt us are people in church community. I'm a church planner. This is what I do. Of course, I'm never leaving Grand Rapids, so you're stuck with me. I'm like a virus. When I bite you, I never go away. 
But as a church planner, one of the things I'm trained to do is to figure out what's going on in a particular place. Whenever I go somewhere, I wanna learn how do people live? What's going on in this cultural context called Grand Rapids? So I started to ask people at places like Founders and New Holland and Ferris Coffee and those kinds of places. I would meet people who work there or people who hang out in these places and I would pepper them with questions. What's Grand Rapids like? What are the biggest needs in Grand Rapids? What do you like about living here? What don't you like about living here? And one thing I learned very quickly in those places is that Grand Rapids is a church culture. And that's true. There are more megachurches here in Grand Rapids than there is in the whole state of New Jersey where I moved from. Literally, there are big churches here in comparison to where I just came from. More people in New Jersey, but bigger churches in this one city. And then some of those folks would go on to tell me why they will never set foot in a building called a church ever again. Uh, one of the stories that I've heard in numerous occasions, uh, but one story a fellow once told me at a place called Founders, he went on to tell me that he grew up in the church. Yes, a church that followed all the rules, that had a lot of clarity in what it meant to be a Christian. And then one day when he was in elementary school, his dad decided to leave his mom he found someone else to give his heart away to, just like we saw in the book of Hosea, some other woman. And instead of working out the divorce over time, dad just left one day and was completely gone. And all of a sudden, there's like four kids with the mom trying to hold it all together as she's like falling apart in depression, wondering what she could have done wrong in the marriage, being angry, being bitter, and all those kinds of things. But the one anchor in this family's life was a place called church, a building that they went to every Sunday. And one Sunday on Communion Sunday, as mom was walking down the aisle to the table, as she's walking up there, broken, weary, and sad in every way, not sure how she's gonna get through the next day or the next week or the next year, she's walking up with her shoulders down and eyes filled with tears, needing the body of Jesus and the blood that comes to us at the cross, she was pulled aside by a deacon and reminded that she is not allowed to take communion because she has been divorced. That guy looked at me and said, I will never go into a building called a church again. Grand Rapids, Michigan, I've heard this story more than once. Maybe even some of you in this room today have experienced this same thing where you've been wounded wrongfully by people who call themselves brother and sister by the blood of Jesus Christ. Because in church community, we get close enough to hurt each other. Another category of people that can get close to us to hurt us are called family. Yes, they're called family. And remember, I'm a church planner, so I go somewhere. I want to figure out how things work. And a group of people that are often really helpful for people like me are police officers. If you want to learn how a city really works, you talk to a cop. Because a cop really knows what's going on. And I remember talking to one of my friends who's a police officer, and I said, hey, man, I bet you that the summer is the absolute worst time of year for you, right? I mean, come on. In the winter, it's like 50 below, no joke, 50 below, and not one week, not two week, but a third week, we have ice storms where we lose our power, man. Who wants to commit a crime when it's freezing cold outside? You're just trying to survive. 
He said, yeah, you know, summer does spike overall when the temperature is warmer outside, but really what happens is Thanksgiving and Christmas Day. He said, those two are the craziest days of the year for us. He said, think about it. You got people who are called family that don't like each other, that all this history of like hurting each other over years and years, placing expectations on each other, sometimes abusing each other with words or even with their hands. And then all of a sudden they're forced to sit down at a table with each other. As they sit at a table with each other, they're drinking wine, maybe even beer. And they have steak knives in their hands because they're cutting their meat. And all of a sudden they're remembering Remember when you did this to me when I was five? But what he went on to tell me is that families can be the most vicious to each other and it only makes sense because family members are not just close proximity geographically, but they're close relationally. And with our words, yes, I use the word our, with our words, we can utterly pummel each other. Last category is work and school. I put those together because if you work a job, you probably spend the majority of your time at the office. Or if you go to school, you probably spend the majority of your time in a classroom. Jobs. Here's an easy way for us to be hurt by an outsider close to us. Imagine me for a moment. You're working a job, and just like every single human being, there's a moment in your life where you feel something called depression or anxiety or insomnia, and as you're wrestling with those things, you finally look at your colleague who sits right next to you, and you say, hey, I just need you to know I'm really struggling right now. Things are hard at home. I just wanted to let you know so you can cover me if I have to make a phone call or head home really quickly, and you say this is because you want to trust this person. You want to be vulnerable with this person. Maybe you've worked with them for eight, 10 years. And instead of that person hearing this information and finding ways to support you, they take that data and they go to your supervisor and they share how you are doing an awful job at your work and how this is a great opportunity for this person to take one step up the hierarchy to have more power, to have a bigger salary because you can't pull your weight. Perhaps you've experienced something like that at work, or maybe for you students, you finally are going through something that's really hard, maybe in middle school or high school or college, and you want to tell one of your friends at school that you're struggling with something and you want to walk it out with that person, but instead they take that information and they do something called gossip. And they gossip and tell other people. They make fun of you of this kind of thing. And they tear you down with their words and not build you up. I'm going to do a sidebar for just a moment because it's really important to do a sidebar. And Crossroads, we're a church that isn't afraid of talking about hard things. Are we not? Okay, here's the deal. Kids ages from 10 to 24. Kids ages from 10 to 24. Students, middle school, high school, and college. The second leading cause of death for students in this age group. Number two is suicide. 
We have all sorts of reasons why young people which should break our hearts who are willing to take their own lives because maybe they did share something like a same-sex attraction with one of their friends and that friend hears this message and they use that to make fun of them, to tell other people how they're weaker or somehow wrong or somehow like not made right by God. And when you're young and you're growing up, you hear these messages and it starts to weigh you down and cripple you. Yes, I firmly believe in Romans 1, 26 and 27 as the truth. This is a sin ultimately, but dang it, Christians, we are saying the wrong messages to people who have same-sex attractions or in same-sex relationships, so much so they are willing to take their own lives. And as Christians, we believe that every life is precious, unborn babies all the way to people on death row. We will fight for the lives of other people because we believe every single life is made in the image of God, no matter what sin they're caught up in. So why are we allowing young people to hear these messages that they are wrong and not made by God to the point where they are willing to take their lives? This should break our hearts. Sidebar over. <laughs> Been nagging at me for weeks. Okay. So here we all are. And on some level, we can all agree that we have been hurt by somebody close to us in church, in family, or maybe at work or in school. We have been hurt by people close to us. It is a betrayal of trust. This is exactly what happened between Israel and Edom. There was a betrayal of trust. You promised to be there, but instead you killed us. You gloated over us. In the same way, we are looking at the people with our mind's eye. Yes, the people who have heard us, we're seeing them right now and we're remembering how they betrayed our trust. And there's this thing called anger that can well up inside of us and this anger becomes almost uncontrollable. It starts to take over our lives and it becomes the absolute worst thing we could ever walk through, which is captured in this image right here. Bitterness. Bitterness is the worst. Bitterness is like taking a handful of Sour Patch Kids and putting them in your mouth, but instead of being able to chew them and swallow them or spit them out of your mouth, they are stuck there forever. And pretty soon, all you can think about are those Sour Patch Kids in your mouth and how sour they are, how awful they are, and how you desperately want to get rid of the Sour Patch Kids. Bitterness is the same way. Once we become bitter towards the people who have hurt us, that bitterness will ultimately control us in every way. Did you know that last night I did not sleep hardly at all? And the reason why I didn't sleep well last night isn't because I was worried about preaching. The reason why I struggled with sleep last night is because I am a bitter man. There are people in church community, there are people in my 
family. Oh my gosh, I could tell you stories. There are people that I've worked with. There are people that I've gone to school with who've gotten close enough to me to betray my trust. And not only does this make me angry, but worse than that, I could not stand in front of you today and acknowledge my own bitterness, my own bitterness that reigns not just in my mouth, but also takes over my heart and my head and causes me not to sleep at night. I find myself just like the Israelites in Psalm 137. Yes, in Psalm 137, this is exactly how they sounded out of their bitterness towards the Edomites. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Bitterness is awful, not only because it takes complete control of us, but it compels us to want to play the game of payback. You did this to me, so I must do the same to you. We take ownership of God's golden rule of pain. So here we are. Here we are, sitting with Israel, people who've experienced the hurt that comes from people who are close to us, just like they did from Edom a long time ago. So the question now is, how do we relate to these outsiders? Well, the first way we relate is we remove the plank from our own eyes. The first thing we must do as we consider how to relate to the people who've hurt us is we have to remove the big plank right out of our eye. Uh, Israel needed to. I mean, Israel was the kind of people that got close to other people and hurt them. If this were not true, there wouldn't be such a thing called the minor prophets, right? God wouldn't need to raise up Hosea and remind the Israelites, hey, why are you cheating on me? Why are you giving your heart away to other gods? You are close to me, Israel, close like my own children, but you're hurting me. And Amos and other minor prophets, as you will see time and time again, Israel got close to other Israelites, other people, outsiders. They got really close to them. And instead of doing the one thing that God says, yes, the one thing God says time and time again is love your neighbor as you love yourself. Take care of the widows and orphans in your midst. Care for the marginalized. Do that thing called justice, righteousness, judgment. Do the right thing in relationship to other people. But time and time again, you will see in the minor prophets, Israel looks at marginalized people and exploits them, takes money out of their pockets and puts it in their own to big, bigger homes, to have a second cottage on the Mediterranean Sea, to not leave the fields open for those who are poor to come in after the first uh, harvest to find food to eat. Time and time again, Israel gets close to people to hurt them. And this is exactly why they need to remember one thing. They are not always the victim. Israel is not the victim in this story. Crossroads Bible Church, hear this as clearly as I can possibly say. We get close to other people and hurt them too. We are prideful. We can easily, no, not we can. We often put ourselves in a place that's high and lifted up over other people. 
We all do it. We do it in church community. We do it in our families. We do it where we work. We do it all where we go to school. We, like Paul says over and over again in the book of Romans, we are all sinners who fall short of the glory of God. We are not always the victim in every story. And as this starts to penetrate our heads and our hearts, not only thinking about the people who got close to us to hurt us, but thinking about the ways in which we have gotten close to others and hurt them. It's important to acknowledge what this hurt actually is. It is sin. It is sin. And sin is like a debt, right? Like if I sin against you, my brother, if I go after you in some way, shape, or form, all of a sudden a debt is created where now I owe you, right? And the only way for me to pay back is you to come and hurt me at least as hard as I hurt you. And maybe you might put a little interest on top and hurt me a little more. We get caught up in this game of sin when we get hurt by other people or when we hurt other people. This game, this economy of payback where I must hurt you more than you hurt me. And the cycle just keeps on going on and on and on. So here's how we're going to end our time. We're going to look at the way that God reveals the solution. Yes, Obadiah preaches the very last verse of this book to show us the future hope we all have to get fixed. And then we're going to talk about when the solution finally comes. When the solution finally comes. So here we go. Verse 21, Obadiah. Verse 21 is the promise of God's solution. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau and hear this, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. The kingdom will be the Lord's. God is a king. God is the sovereign ruler. God is the king of the whole world who reigns from heaven above. And God is the kind of king who establishes his kingdom. Yes, his kingdom, not with a mighty fist and a harsh hand, but God is a king who reigns through forgiveness. Yes, God reigns through forgiveness. And the only way to get out of this cycle, my brother, is for you to forgive me, to wipe my debt clean so that you no longer have to come at me and hurt me more than I hurt you, but we can be brought closer back together the way that God intended through forgiveness. Forgiveness is the solution to the problem. It completely wipes the debt clean. But as you know, there's the word will in there that talks about a future day, right? Minor prophets were fiery preachers because they were able to lift out the future hope we have in God. So when does God's kingdom come down to earth to reign through forgiveness? Fast forward button. Fast forward button. 586 plus years. 586 plus years. You got a guy named Peter who like to get close to people to chop off their ears. <laughs> a guy who likes to get close to people just to hurt them. <laughs> but a guy who's also experienced a tremendous amount of hurt as well. And he's really wrestling with this idea of forgiveness, knowing that it's the only way to get out of this cycle. 
And so he goes to his rabbi, his master, his teacher, a guy by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes to Jesus and he asks, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Jesus says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who has a servant. That servant owes the king 10,000 bags of gold, which is equivalent to hundreds of millions of dollars. And the king wheels this servant out in front of him. And he says, servant, time to pay up. You owe me. You've hurt me. Now it's time to pay up. Let's go. The servant comes, falls on his face. Lord, 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 please have pity on me. Have mercy on me. I can't pay this debt. There's no way in my lifetime I'll ever be able to pay it off. Please forgive me of my debt. King says, you are forgiven. The balance is wiped off. No more debt between you and me. We are now restored relationally, servants. That servant is now set free. He goes out and he finds a person, another guy who owns him a hundred bucks. And he goes to that guy who owes him a hundred dollars and he says, hey buddy, you owe me a hundred bucks. Let's go. Come on, pay up. And the guy's like, hey man, please have pity on me. Times are tough. I don't have the hundred dollars to pay you back. Please forgive me of this debt. You would think that the guy that was forgiven millions of dollars would easily forgive the guy who owes him a hundred dollars, right? You would think it would be easy for him. But instead, he chooses not to forgive, but have the guy thrown in jail. Crossroads Bible Church. Why can't we forgive the people who owe us $100 when Jesus Christ not only brought the kingdom of God down to earth to reign with forgiveness, but Jesus Christ came down to earth to forgive us the millions of dollars we owe him. Because that's the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God came to, down to earth to not only reign as king, but to reign with his forgiveness, to wipe away all the debts that we owe each other when we hurt each other by getting way too close. God came down to earth, and now the centerpiece of all human history isn't events like Babylon destroying Israel, or what Edom did to Israel as a betrayal, or what someone did to us in a church community, but more importantly, the centerpiece of human history, the center of our lives, is when Jesus Jesus Christ goes to a cross and from the cross he looks at the whole world and says you are forgiven the millions of dollars you owe to God for all that you've done to other people and to me has been completely washed away you are now forgiven and now not only we are the recipients of this wonderful gift that only comes from God but now we are called by God to go out and extend the kingdom of God to bring his reign throughout the world and the way that we Christians are called to be missionaries extending the kingdom of God is with none other than forgiveness. We meet those people, the people that keep me up at night that have hurt me oh so bad, and we look at those people and we say, you are forgiven. 
We look at those people who did underhanded things to us in our families for years and years and years. And of course, we need boundaries. Of course, those things are true. But we look at those people and say, you are forgiven because the gospel is the kingdom of God extending out into the world. And the way that it extends again, let me say this one more time, is through forgiveness, which means, friends, we are no longer controlled by the Sour Patch Kids in our mouths. We have been set free by the blood of the Lamb. And the way, <laughs> Dan Mike talked about baptism, right? And I guess there's nobody lined up to do that today, but here's the deal. Baptism is one of the best symbols of someone publicly acknowledging the kingdom of God reigning through forgiveness. Because it's a moment when someone goes under the waters and rises as a new creation. The slate is completely clean. And not only that, the person is publicly declaring that they will live into the kingdom of God by extending the forgiveness that they have received from Jesus Christ. So if you're here today and you're not sure if you should be baptized, if you're questioning whether or not you should come up and go under the waters, don't question anymore. Just come. I'll give you my own clothes. I'll preach in my shorts next time. I don't care because I want to see people who rise from the water saying yes to the million dollars of forgiveness that only comes from the cross and also saying, yes, I will forgive those people who hurt me for $100. Because then we'll have more kingdom mischief makers walking around living differently than the world often tells us to live. Would you please pray with me? Dear Jesus, we thank you that you are not only the centerpiece of history, but you are the lovers of our souls. <laughs> You're so close to us, Lord. You're dwelling inside of us. I thank you for Crossroads Bible Church, my family, my home, my people. And I just pray right now together with my friends that if there's any bitterness that is reigning in our hearts and our minds, if we are being controlled by the hurts of other people, I just pray that people here today will live into forgiveness. Not only will they forgive those who've hurt them in really painful ways, but more importantly, we'll be the kind of people who look to the people around us, people that we have hurt ourselves and will say we're sorry. We pray as we simply live into this forgiveness in our everyday lives, your kingdom will grow. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.